0: saying, why do you got that stupid smile on your face, Jamie? And uh, there's a reason, because I'm telling you, this is why I called this series Future 401. I mean, it's just like you take 101-level classes, 201-level classes, 301-level classes, and then if you remember college, you get those those 401-level classes that you really weren't ready for until you're a senior. When I was reading Daniel a year ago, getting ready for this series, I thought, after chapter 11, the chapter you just heard— I thought, this is like future 401. Who's going to get that? It was like the Lord said to me, well, they will. want you to you explain it to them? And so that's what we're going to do right now is we're going to try to make sense, because we can, of the chapter you just heard. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. This is Scottsdale Bible Church. We love your word. We rally around your word. We believe that it holds transformative power for our lives. And it's true that when uh, truth enters into our minds and our hearts and then we have the courage to live it, your Holy Spirit tends to enter in in fresh ways and empower us. And so, God, we shy away from no part of your Word here at this church because we know that all of it's been given to us by, or to, to, for us by you, and we're grateful for it. So, Father, I pray that as we unpack just a little bit of Daniel 11 right now, that, God, you would help us to understand it rightly. And as I always pray, apply it diligently to our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, the passage that we just heard read is obviously one massive, lengthy, detailed chapter from the Bible, if there ever was one. And never mind the fact that it takes over 10 minutes just to read as you just experienced. The most daunting thing about this chapter is that it describes in great detail the ins and outs, the ups and downs of more than 10 generations of leaders from two ancient nations in addition to Israel spanning a period of just about 375 years. And it does all of this without ever mentioning any of the king's names. I mean, that's one tall order to try to understand a chapter like that. If you ever read James Mishner novels, I mean, they're long, lengthy, detailed dramas and sagas. Imagine reading a James Mishner novel without any of the names included in it. That's kind of like Daniel chapter 11. And yet, because of the fact that we have secular historical records outside the Bible at the time that Daniel wrote, we do actually know the names. You saw them on the pictures there of the people that Daniel is writing about here. And once you insert these names and understand a little bit about the history, it's not as difficult as it seems to trace the thought and flow of Daniel's predictions here. Now, let's not forget, that's what's happening here in Daniel 11. These are predictions that the angel begins in the previous chapter in telling Daniel what is to come. The year is about 539 B.C. right now and the angel predicting what's going to happen over the next three or four hundred years for the nation Israel. And what you simply need to know before we go any further here this morning is that everything that Daniel predicts here in chapter 11, everything that the angel tells him is going to come true over the next 15 or so generations. They all come true. And I mean down to the last detail, all the things written here about kings rising and falling, alliances made and broken, wars won and fought, Israel caught in the middle and suffering, all of this actually will come true over the next 375 years just before the time of Christ. And so don't let that escape you this morning, folks. It's the nature of biblical prophecy, that God predicts it, He writes it down and sees that it's recorded in the Bible, and lo and behold, it comes true which is why you and I have confidence in prophecy. Because we read chapters like Daniel 11 that were written hundreds of years before the events occurred. We see it come true and we say, God is good. Everything God says will come to fruition so that when we read the parts that haven't come to fruition yet, things that we've seen in this series, like a tribulation, an antichrist coming, a 1,000-year reign of Christ, all in the future, we say, I can bank on that too because God has a 100% track record of fulfilling the predictions he gives us in the Bible. Now, to try to walk you through all the historical details of Daniel 11 in the, like, half an hour that we have left here this morning would be virtually impossible I'm telling you it will take hours to adequately walk you through the multiple generations being referenced here in Daniel 11. Let me show you what I mean. Look up here on the screen. This is actually a genealogical chart of all the generations being talked about there in Daniel 11. It's from the ESV study Bible. It makes your head swim just to look at it, doesn't it? And every one of those generations, every one of those individuals has a story behind it. You heard some of the details as the scripture was read here just recently. And so again, it would take an entire series of enrichment classes for us to walk through this in any adequate detail. And so what I am going to do this morning, however, is give you three very life applicable applicable points that are contained right here in Daniel 11 that will also allow us to see and understand a bit of the history and flow of what is happening here. And then I'm going to relate them to our day and age. And so hopefully, if we do this right, it's going to be the best of both worlds this morning, getting some good biblical history, which is always good for us, but also combining it with some take-home truths that you can apply Monday through Saturday in your day-to-day life. And so here we go. Look up here on the screen, and for you note-takers, pull out your outlines. Here's the first thing that Daniel 11 reveals to us, and that is that sometimes let's just say it more plainly, many times, secular culture around us can get complex and crazy. Have you found that yet? And That as a follower of Jesus Christ, and as we'll relate to the Old Testament, as a follower of God there, one of the things they learned is that this world is not our home. And the reason we know that is because many times secular culture around us can get very complex and very crazy. And so let me share with you in broad brushstroke fashion what's happening here in and around Israel at that time, and and you'll see what I'm getting at here. It's again, it's about 400 to 150 B.C., which is where these events mainly take place, and it mentions all these different kings complete with two warring kingdoms and Israel caught in the middle. And so to best see this, I put a map up there behind me on the screen, and I just need you to notice a couple of things about this that I think you'll find really cool. And you'll understand Daniel 11 within about the next minute and a half. Notice there to the north, I circled in big red there, the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid Empire. That's where modern day Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Turkey, those nations are right now. Back then it was the Seleucid Empire. Then notice in the south, I circled in red, the Ptolemaic Empire. That's where modern-day Egypt is right now. And what you simply need to know is that in Daniel 11, when it talks about the kingdom to the north and then the kingdom to the south, it's referring to the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empire. That's what it's referring to there. You see, Alexander the Great, many of you heard of him from your history books, died in 323 B.C., and yet his conquests were vast. And when he died, his land grabs went to four generals, his four top generals. Two of the most powerful were Seleucus and Ptolemy. And so when it says the Seleucid Empire, it's simply one of the generals of Alexander the Great who got all that land to the north, and then Ptolemy, another general of Alexander the Great who got all the land to the south there. And so these are the two huge kingdoms that are being talked about in Daniel 11. And Daniel 11 is describing the six or so generations that stem from these and war with each other from about 323 B.C. to about 164 B.C. That's the context of Daniel 11. Eventually both these kingdoms would be overrun by the powerful Roman Empire that would then reign through Jesus' day. But at this point, these are the two nations that are in play in Daniel 11. Now, once you get this, to put it all together, what I need you to see more than anything else is what I circled in blue there. That little nation there caught in the middle, right between the kingdom of the north and kingdom of the south, is the nation Israel. You guys get it. It's Israel. And that's what Daniel 11 is all about, is showing how Israel is taking all the brunt of this secular warring going on at that time between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. It would be Israel that they're predicting that would get caught in the crossfire, literally, of these two secular nations as they would fight each other and eventually Israel would even get major league ransacked by the sixth Seleucid king, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We'll get to that in just a minute. And yet before we get to that point, what I need you to see so very clearly, the first thing in Daniel 11 here is the reality that it's telling us that sometimes, many times, secular culture, i.e. kingdoms of the north, kingdoms of the south, can get complex and crazy and you and I get caught in the middle. This is exactly what was happening in Israel at this time. If you remember from your history books, when we've studied the book of Esther and when we studied earlier in Daniel, you know that just before this time period, Israel has come out of exile, gone back to Jerusalem, rebuilt their city, rebuilt their temple, rebuilt the wall, and for the next 100 years has relative peace in their nation. I mean, it's like back to the good times for Israel. But now what Daniel is envisioning here is that secular culture around them is getting complex and crazy again. Alexander the Great has conquered all the known world and established the Greek Empire. He's now dead. His four generals are warring with each other. Israel's caught right in the middle of it. In addition, the entire Greek system of gods, a whole new religion has arisen with Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo, you guys remember all that. It's now in full force. Seemingly sane and educated people are buying into this false religion stuff. And as if all that were not enough, city after city is popping up that are so immoral that it makes Vegas and New Orleans look righteous. I mean, that's what's happening in Israel at that time. I had to give a dig. I mean, I just had to. Anyways, that's Israel at that time. And so picture Israel trying their best to keep on the straight and narrow, to walk with God, and they're being bombarded, both physically and spiritually, from forces all around them. It's secular culture getting crazy and complex. And then we're going to see in just a minute what Israel's response was to all of this cultural chaos. Let's not miss the obvious application to you and me, and that is that you and I also know what it's like to live in a culture They can get crazy and complex around us as well. We do. Because I'm going to suggest to you this morning that what started out as a pretty straightforward and visionary nation some 200 years ago with democracy and decency leading the way has turned into a very complex and crazy culture here in the United States. I want you to just think of all the stuff that's happened to our country and our culture just over the last 100 years. Just in your generation, your parents' generation, and say your great-grandparents' generation. It all began 100 years ago with World War I. That was a really tough war. Then we entered into the Roaring Twenties, a decade of entire de- decadence. And then we entered into the Great Depression that lasted about 10 years with over 30% unemployment during that time. Then we went into World War II, in which over a third of a million men from the United States died alone. Then we went into the Korean War in the 1950s. This led then to the Cold War with Russia that many of you remember that lasted for at least three or four decades. And then we had the counterculture movement of the late 1960s, the rebellion movement. We then had the Vietnam War. We then entered into the 1970s and what historians label the Me Generation. Remember that? That's when self-help was invented and all the liberation movements. Then we entered into a time of the Gulf War with terrorism on our own soil, the Iraq War, and now the Great Recession. I believe that's what historians are going to refer to this time as. They say technically it's over, but most people aren't feeling that yet at all. We're definitely still dealing with a recession Folks, look at that list behind me there. I would submit to you that that's a lot of complexity for 100 years for any nation. And as if this were not enough, in the midst of all of this, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, we've gone through three major revolutions in our country in the last 100 years. The Industrial Revolution, the Technological Revolution, and the Digital Revolution. And it's been such a blessing, but also such a bane at the same time that our heads are still spinning from these three revolutions. I mean, on a blessing level, they brought to us everything from electricity to mass travel to MRIs to antibiotics to personal computers... And yet think about it, folks. With all of the good, it's also created a new level of personal and moral complexity as it has ushered in a postmodern era in which now our culture wrestles with everything from sexual identity to the rights of the unborn to cloning to stem cell research to rampant and readily available pornography. I mean, these are things that your great-grandparents would have had no moral ambiguity about at all, and yet they are things that our culture sees as gray areas and wrestles with on a daily level. I don't care how you slice it, folks. Culture for you and me has gotten a bit crazy around us and at the very least complex just in the last 100 years. You know, I'm constantly trying to to analyze the culture that you and I live in because as a pastor, my greatest concern really is not as much about culture but about you and me and that we can walk with God in the midst of all the stuff that happens in our world. And so this is important to me, whether we agree or not, that, that our culture is crazy and complex. And so for those of you who aren't convinced, I just want to share with you, I look up here on the screen, the top 10 favorite books of U.S. adults. This was done by the Harris Polling Organization just two years ago in 2008. And as I read this list for you, you tell me if this is a sane thing or not, that these would be the top 10 favorite books of a nation that's not complex. First book is the Bible. That's good news, by the way. I don't think most people have read it, but I'm glad it's their top ten favorite book. Second book would be Gone with the Wind, right? That's a good book there. Third, Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, good. Fourth, just three down from the Bible, their favorite book is Harry Potter series. Number five, four down from the Bible, The Stand by Stephen King. Number six, now now, now latch on to this, Bible number one. Number six, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Number seven, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Number eight, Angels and Demons by Dan Brown. Number nine, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Number 10, Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. I would simply submit to you folks that any culture that has these books as their top ten favorite is awfully confused. Confused. Don't get me wrong. I'm an educated guy. I've read eight of these books. I have not read Gone with the Wind. I'm not going to. But I have read eight of these books. And so I consider myself an educated guy and I like to learn what people read. But they aren't my favorite, save for the Bible. I mean, the reality is, is that anybody that would put the Bible and Dan Brown's novels right next to each other is confused. That's a complex culture that doesn't really understand spiritual things, even reality in general. I like how Joanne Bradley, a professor at Mars Hill Graduate School in Seattle, says it. This is cool. Look up here on the screen. She says, Unlike Israel's exile, our process of secularization is not clearly marked by a hostile takeover. We're losing the land by way of a thousand little changes. And she's Right. It's slow and sure. It's the frog in the kettle that's that's, that's heating up the water here in America. About four years ago, um, NBC decided to run the Veggie Tales on their uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Do you guys remember the Veggie Tales? I asked the first service, which is mainly our older crowd, I said, give me a hand raise. How many of you guys know the Veggie Tales? They were clueless. So let's see a hand raise. How many of you guys know? Oh, yeah. See, I told them that, too. I told them in the first crowd, I said, second and third, they'll get you beat on this one. They know the Veggie Tales. And the Veggie Tales is awesome. I, I, we showed them to our kids. You know, you got Bob and, and who's the, Larry, the cucumber, you know, and all of that. And, 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 and the kids love it. It teaches them about God and teaches them values. So wasn't it cool when four years ago, NBC decided to put it on the Saturday morning cartoons? It's just that after a few weeks, they realized that NBC was editing the Veggie Tales, and they were taking out all of the references to God and all of the references to Scripture. And when after a few weeks, they pointed this out to NBC, they originally said, well, it's because we needed to fit it into a 23-minute time slot. And they said, then why are you editing all that out? And finally, NBC came out with this statement. Listen to what they say. They say, NBC is committed to the positive messages and the universal values of VeggieTales. Our goal is to reach as broad an audience as possible with these positive messages while being careful to not advocate any one religious point of view. So they took the VeggieTales, which are essentially Christian, and they took out all the Christianity. Christianity. Paul Vischer, who's the co-creator of VeggieTales, had this in response. He said, and I quote, it's a mistake to pitch VeggieTales as just values because fundamentally it's about God. I thought Bob Bazell from the Parents Television Council and the Media Research Center said it best. This is kind of biting, but it's true, folks. He says, and I quote, today, no one in network TV fears what children are watching unless it makes them think about God. And it's true. You and I live in the kind of culture, now now try to grab onto this, that, that is afraid of our kids publicly learning about God and Jesus but doesn't mind them being exposed to Britney Spears and all the other garbage out there. I mean, think about it. That's the world that you and I live in. That's why I'm simply saying, I don't think we're being too harsh here in making the parallel that just as Israel lived in a complex and crazy world, so do you and I. This is not your grandfather's world anymore. Culture has changed right before us and it's complex and it's it's very confused. And so I simply need you to see before we move any further that just as Israel was caught in the middle of all the shenanigans, so are we. It's part of living in a fallen world that's not our home. It happened to Israel in Daniel's time, and it surely has happened to us. Now, once we establish this, the question becomes, well, what do we do? What should our response be then to ever-increasing secularism in the culture in and around us? And in the short time we have remaining this morning, I want to share with you two things. Two things that come right from Daniel 11, but then also are Filled in the gaps by other scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that I believe are our Jesus like response to a culture gone astray around us. And here's the first thing and that is that we must stand firm, take action, and allow God's grace and His truth to guide us. Man, if you don't hear anything else this morning, tune into this. That the response that once you understand the whole of the Bible gives us to a culture gone astray is to stand firm, take action, and then allow grace and truth to guide you as you move into a wayward culture. And so look up here on the screen. As I shared with you all a few weeks back when we studied Daniel 7 and 8, what eventually happens to Israel in the year 170 B.C. is that the sixth king of the Seleucid Empire, the kingdom to the north there, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, ransacks Jerusalem, he destroys all the temple practices, and in the process ends up killing 80,000 Jews. It's one of the worst massacres of Israel found in all of the Bible. And this assault lasted for about six years until a very brave Jewish priest by the name of Mattathias led a revolt along with his five brave sons, and eventually they overthrew Antiochus in the year 164 B.C., One of the sons was named Judas Maccabeus and so it became known as the Maccabean Revolt and it's why the Jewish people to this day celebrate Hanukkah. Maybe you didn't know that before. Hanukkah all celebrates the liberation and freedom they got during the Maccabean Revolt. And so with this understanding, read along with me. Look up here on the screen to Daniel 11, verses 32 to 35, as it predicts what is going to take place in 164 B.C. This is very instructive for you and I. Look at Daniel 11, verses 32 to 35. It says, "...he," meaning Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, "...shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action." And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble, which means die, by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now, For our sake this morning, focus on that key phrase that I put there for you in yellow. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Folks, this is powerful. Simply put, Mattathias and his five sons knew that they needed to stand firm in their reliance upon God and His truth. Not caving into the craziness and complexity of the culture around them. And with much wisdom, you will notice they took action. Action that was just and right and eventually led to the freedom and liberation of God's people. And in taking action, they did a number of things. Obviously, they rallied an army and took back Jerusalem. In other words, they physically protected their land and their culture. But we also know from extra-biblical resources that they further guarded their hearts and their minds from all the cultural chaos going around them as well. It says in the book of 1 Maccabees, a non-canonical book, meaning it's not a part of our Bible, but nevertheless, it is historically reliable. It says from that time, and I quote, Many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And so please don't miss this, folks. They didn't just protect Jerusalem physically, but they spiritually guarded their hearts and their minds from all the secular onslaught around them. And I believe that there is something in this for you and me. you know, about 150 years after the Maccabean Revolt, Jesus would show up on the scene. And it's interesting, when Jesus showed up on the scene, as most every one of us know here this morning, everything changed. He ushered in the new covenant. It was the new age, what some theologians call the age of grace. It was where the fulfillment of all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament would eventually come true. And so isn't it interesting that when Jesus showed up on the scene, John, one of his closest followers, immediately describes in poetic terms who Jesus is and what he is about. And I would submit to you that contained in his description of Jesus is our response, bouncing off of Daniel 11, to how we respond to culture around us. Look at John chapter 1. Verses 14 and then 16 and 17. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now here it is, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Folks, it's like a scratch CD. Three times it repeats itself here in just three verses. It says, Full of grace and truth, grace upon grace, grace and truth. That's how Jesus came to you and I. And I would submit to you that that's exactly the model that we exemplify when it comes to how we respond and move into the chaos of our culture. Now let that sink in a moment. Truth. Truth. The reality that we can know that God exists and that he is good. The reality that we can know what is right and true. The reality that we have values and standards that you and I live by that's outlined in God's book of truth, the Bible. Think about it, folks. You and I now have truth on our side to guide us through a crazy and complex culture. You see, truth informs you and I how to think, how to view the world around us, not just from our own vantage point, but from God's vantage point. And truth is designed so that once you and I know how to think, don't miss this, we know how to live. Truth is designed to be the kind of thing that helps us develop a worldview that is thoroughly Christian and Jesus-like, that is God-like, that then allows us to do the right things and live and make decisions in a runaway culture. You and I now have truth, no excuses. And then in a new way, not seen before with the advent of Jesus, we have grace you're going to want to dial into this one. Simply put, if truth is designed to clue us in on how to think and live, grace is designed to teach us and clue us in on how to relate and to approach God and those around us. You see, grace tells us that we cannot live the life that God wants us to without His freely offered salvation in Jesus Christ. Grace tells us that you and I can't bring anything of real value to God. All we can do is lay our lives down at Jesus' cross and plead for his mercy and his help. Grace even tells us that once we're in the door of relationship with him through salvation offered in Christ, we're still really finite and fragile. And that in the grand scheme of things, we still need God's Holy Spirit power and help each moment of each day. In short, don't miss this, folks. Grace undergirded by truth, shows us how to approach God with humility and poverty of spirit so that we might experience His fullness and His power in our lives. And then when you have the guts to transfer His grace from the vertical to the horizontal with others around you, grace then screams to you to be a man or woman of compassion, of kindness, of goodness, and of forgiveness, even for the most grievous of offenses. In fact, it's what followers of Jesus are known for that in the midst of a culture that will never let go of a wrong done to you, we let it go. We forgive and we show kindness and compassion. Again, as we speak the truth, as Paul will go on to say, we speak the truth in love. Why? Because of His grace. And the point is, folks, is that when you put grace and truth together as they've been put together in Jesus Christ, you have the most potent and powerful combination of traits to deal with a confused and complex culture ever given. I mean, think about it. Truth and grace is what allows an apologist like Ravi Zacharias or Josh McDowell to come along and defend the veracity of the Christian faith with rugged intellectualism and yet to do so with such respect that the most hardened atheists tend to at least listen to them grace and truth when they're put together allow organizations like compassion international or the international justice mission or world vision to come along and try to fight for the rights of the poor and the oppressed and yet do so in countries in which they won't let any average organization come in but they'll let them come in because of the maturity and relationality that they have because of his grace i think you're starting to get the picture it's when grace and truth are mixed together that you and I get the opportunity to speak boldly to an erring culture about the things that will ultimately destroy them from the inside out, but get to do so, as Peter says, with kindness and gentleness, a brand of kindness and gentleness that stands the best chance of winning the day. And all I can tell you, folks, is what a tall order this is for Christians today. We're not known for mixing grace and truth very well. We tend to emphasize one or the other, In other words, you tend to have a brand of Christian, and you guys all know people like this that's really good at truth. They're really into the apologetic stuff, and they're always whacking people over the head with the truth, but they have no grace. And then we know Christians over here that are really good at grace. I mean, they're as forgiving as the day is long. You can do anything to them, and it's like water off a duck's back, but they're never going to speak a piece of truth to you to save their lives. And the reality is, is that Jesus comes along, and He comes to us full of grace and truth, a beautiful mixture, As Romans 2 verse 4 would say, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. When are Christians going to understand that? That unless we're mixing truth with grace, we really have no right to try to deal with a confused and complex culture. But when we mix them together rightly, look out. That's the recipe to speak into our culture. And as we do this, we also remember one final thing that Daniel 11 then teaches us. And it's our final point this morning. We're just about out of time but it represents the core of our faith in Almighty God. And that is that we always remember, no matter what happens, that God is in control of it all, even the future. Uh, Tune into this for just one second. I know you guys are tired. I can tell. But the reality is, is is that when you try to move into culture with grace and truth, what tends to happen is that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Give me a head nod that you guys get that, right? I mean, sometimes you can be as full of grace and truth as you possibly can in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet it doesn't win a day in a culture gone mad. I get that, and it's true. So what do you do at that point? I think this is the last thing Daniel 11 teaches us, that no matter what the result of entering into our culture with truth and grace is, at the end of the day, God's people trust Him. They remember He is in control they sit and rest easy because they know that even the future is in God's hands. I don't have time to give you all the details with this, but look one last time at Daniel 11. As you add up some phrases in verses 27, 29, 35, 36, and 45, you will see that it talks about the fact that amidst all of the chaos going on there, God was in absolute control. It says in verse 27 when it's talking about the two warring kings against each other that This is to no avail because the end is not yet to be until the appointed time. And then in verse 29, it talks about the appointed time again. And then in verse 35, when it's talking about the Maccabean revolt, it says, well, it still awaits the appointed time. And then in verse 36, as it talks about Antiochus and all of his shenanigans. It says, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done And then in verse forty-five, it says, in talking about the antichrist, it says, "Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him." Add all that up, folks. Three times it says the appointed time. Then it says the decree shall be done. Then it says he shall come to his end. I don't know about you, but it sure sounds like someone's more in control of all of this than we realize at first glance. Amen. Sure sounds like somebody is taking all of this somewhere, and sure enough, we know who that is. It's God, and I think that's the final point of Daniel eleven. Then in the midst of all the craziness and complexity of culture, God is still on the throne. He still rules from heaven. His will still stands, and nothing can thwart it. What a truth for you and me. I love how John Piper states this reality in his book, A Bitter and Sweet Providence. Look up here on the screen. This is great. He says, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. No, life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones... Not just in know in our heads that God is for us in all of these strange turns. Now listen, he says God is not just showing up after these troubled events and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's God, folks. He is so in control of everything going on that, as I've said throughout this whole series, he's not up in heaven biting his fingernails wondering what's going to happen next. He knows all of it. And he rests easy knowing that his purposes in the end are going to prevail. And that's what you and I need to trust. I'm going to leave you with a quote from a great spiritual writer of old, Henry Van Dyke. Look up here on the screen. He says this He says, Happy and strong and brave shall we be, able to endure all things and to do all things if we believe that every day, every hour, every moment of our life is in God's hands. I hope you can do that. I hope you can rest easy, knowing that as the chaos brews around us, He is in ultimate control, and He is worthy and good and one to be trusted. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that we can take a chapter like Daniel 11 and as difficult as it might seem at first glance once we just slow down and unpack a little bit of it it contains some great and very transformative truth for us and father god we know that culture around us can get awfully out of control that's what daniel 11 teaches us that's been our experience today but the lord we know too that as we as the church band together as followers of christ band together and stop arguing over petty things but focus on the major issues and take action and approach our culture with grace and with truth, that, Lord, we can make changes. And God, indeed, I pray that that would continue to be the story of our country, that as we continue to help them sort through all the complexities of our postmodern day, that, God, as we come to them with grace and with truth from Your Word, that they might listen and that, Lord, we might be able to inject some change still in this culture of ours. Lord, we know at the end of the day, no matter what happens, however, we trust you. We know that you're in full control of our lives in this world and that not a sparrow falls to the ground, as Jesus said, outside of the will of the Father. And so trust you, we do. We thank you, God, for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for our time together and for your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all of us say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.